Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I mean, I just kept thinking about how strange tennis is that it, it forces you to kind of live in these two-week bubbles that depending on what your life is at the moment are more or less intense, but it's just weird. It kind of takes over. And then when it ends the next day, you're kind of like, what do I do with myself? It's like when you finish a really good book and you're like, when at the end of it is like, what now? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or like a, a movie or a TV show or some, I, I guess a TV show also is pretty good because you know, it's a place you kind of visit and it's long and yeah. lasts for a while. And then you're, you're kind of left. Okay. That's it. That was that it's over. Yeah. It was definitely, definitely a strange experience because it was the men and the women were so different. I mean, you could not design two more different tournaments than the men and the women had, mm-hmm. which I guess I kept thinking throughout the tournament that it's yet another, yet yet more evidence that the tour, the tours, well, more than the tours, that the men and the women should be joined as a union and then as one tour, because you offer, it's like joining two restaurants, one that offers lunch and dinner, lunch and breakfast, and the other one dinner, like not one more than the other, but the idea is you offer two ends of the spectrum, you offer the whole program. If you like this, here's this. If you like this other thing, there's that. I mean, between the two tours, you kind of had everything, which was, it was nice, but I don't know how many people thought of that it would be a good idea. I mean, and honestly, for the men, it kind of, (laughs) it should make them think that the women are going to have this incredible golden age the next decade that is even more golden now than it seemed because I mean Leila Fernandez was amazing she was definitely my favorite I, I just got very hooked on her game and how she competed and both of us being half well she's half Ecuadorian I'm full Ecuadorian so there was that and then but Radu Cano I just it was so I don't know about you guys but when I was watching I watched her matches and I think I watched the one against Rivas Tormo. I watched it like two days after the fact. I watched the one against Shelby Rogers. And then uh, who was it that she played? Benchich, I think. Yeah, yeah, she just and, yeah. and then Sakari. And then Sakari. And I watched those. And especially, say, the Rogers, the Benchich, and the Sakari. My main question was why do these three experienced women? just kind of collapse and stop trying to find answers. 
it was just a very unique phenomenon. I hadn't seen that in a long, mm-hmm. long time. And I think in the final, I really understood. It's just, uh, Emma is so, I think they, for players that are so experienced, I, my theory was that she just kind of made them feel on a very personal and visceral level, like past intellectual level that, that they, the, that they were inadequate, that they couldn't do anything. Yeah. That she had everything. It was, yeah. like, I, I think you said on Twitter at one point, like she has no weaknesses and like Fernandez as well. Um, like their games are completely mature, even though they're yeah. 18 and 19. Yeah. And well, the funny thing is uh, people kept thinking that they're 18 and 19. They're really two months apart. That's all yeah. they are. They're <laughs> right. basically yeah. the same age. Lila yeah, just turned, turned 19. 19 during the tournament. Yeah. yeah. Mid-tournament. Yeah. Yeah, Emma turns 19, I think, in two months or something. They're two or three months apart. It's it's a very small difference. And actually, you watch the final and you're like, okay, now I see where Layla has to work on in, in the future, like the serve. But then you think of Radu kind of like, I mean, I'm just curious to see how, how she does against, for example, an informed Kvitova or an informed Pliskova or how she does, I don't know, like, like an inform Osaka or whatever. Yeah, like someone exactly. with as much power as she has. Or even someone... Kerber. Kerber would have been a super good um, matchup for her. I think it's disappointing that we didn't get to see that in the tournament. Yes, I, I think, uh, yes. So, I mean, because it, it's so new. So we kind my, of, my curiosity is kind of like, let's just have Radu kind of go against anybody and see what happens. Yeah. See if, see if she loses a set. It was just, I mean, I've... It just defies belief that someone at 18 would be that good. Yeah. And I I don't know if you guys, I missed her Wimbledon thing completely. I didn't see anything. And when I was going to pay attention, she lost. And, you know, that whole thing happened. And I didn't think too much of it. I just thought, well, the kid's 18. It's yeah. Wimbledon first try. Yeah. Like, this makes sense to me. Yeah, um, I, I was impressed at the run. But for me, the... The flags sort of went up when she beat uh, Sodri Bestormo because I, I love watching Sodri Bestormo because she defends so well and she grinds. And so, like, she players didn't will collapse, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like players she will like, blow her off the court. Yeah. But she'll like <laughs> defend and she'll just draw players into these grind fests. And Radu Kanu hits through her for the entire match, yeah. which people just yeah. don't do. And it was 0 and 1. It wasn't like yes. two and two or anything. So I saw that. And I'm like, <laughs> holy crap. I've and seen a lot of yeah. Sabriba Stormo matches and this just doesn't happen. And, then- and it's funny because every every match that would come up, it would, we everybody would be like, okay, so now this is a challenge. Let's see like how Raducanu deals with this and this and that because this player is really good at this. And like every match is like, okay, now this is going to be a challenge. Now this is going to be a challenge. And it ended up being like straight sets, not even at two five, right? So like nobody, not, nobody even pushed her to five. And to be no. fair, I think the most challenging match, like the entire um draw must have been the final which was yeah. almost two hours long even though the score is like six, four three, three. Six, four. yeah yeah i think it was closer than the score i think for 100 yeah, break point yeah. at two all and then in the first and then break point in the last game the first set was <sighs> really really interesting to watch it was really yeah. good well the probably like was, the highest I mean, quality tied at the i mean it was it was one of the and it actually reminded me of though some of the Djokovic and Nadal matches that end up being super intense and super even but then the scoreline ends up being like four and three. Yeah. Like Their Miami match. So it was yeah. something like that because Layla didn't fade. Like she kept trying and she kept trying and she tried different things and she tried her best. I don't think she played her best. 
but who can blame her? It's a slam final. Um, <laughs> and it's not like she shied away from doing things. I, I just think, you know, she missed some shots that yeah. she would have liked to not miss. But um, yeah, my God, this Emma was just. Yeah. yeah. And, and think, then the bad yeah. luck of that the, on the break point, they have to stop. With the, the bleeding knee that you, she, I like how she's now learning that she can, um, that she can slide. Like, this that, is the thing that, that, that was le- nuts during the tournament. Yeah, learning in real time. She, I, I meant to tweet this and I, I never tweeted it out because also my the, the intersection between basketball Twitter and tennis Twitter is like non-existent. But she. Radu kind of reminded me of like a, a more extreme version of when I saw Joel Embiid uh, show up in Kansas. Because uh, I don't really watch that much college sports. I don't even know why I watched Kansas to begin with at that point. It's just coincidence or something. I just saw this like gangly dude and he just moved with a fluidity that I just thought was unreal. And then I was hooked. So I would watch every one of his matches and in every match he kept getting better. And I didn't understand how that was possible. And then I read about him and he hadn't really started playing basketball until recently. And that's one of those that is just complete natural talent. These people just have the ability to start doing something and they incorporate things at warp speed. Yeah. And it seems like Radu Kano is, is like that. Yeah, I, I mean, because um, improvement in tennis is something that usually happens slowly. Like uh, Yannick Center. His serve has been an issue, and he keeps saying he's working on it. And you can kind of see it, but it's not its not a huge difference yet. And then learning how to slide during a tournament. I mean, you have Osaka, who still hasn't totally mastered sliding on clay. That seems like yeah. it's going to be a multi-year process. But doing yes. it during weeks is just incomprehensible. Like, no, that's just complete yeah. natural talent. Like, people who see Djokovic now finishing stuff at net don't realize how long that took. That's more than a decade of... Yeah, <laughs> practicing and refining yeah. instincts and yeah. technique, and just the doing it hundreds of times till you become finally competent. Right, like he still hits horrible volleys. Is the thing like <laughs> most of them are good, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you watch them. Uh, here's the thing: that I mean, the Joko's mash is a thing, right? So, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that one. That one, I think he's in complete denial and just. <laughs> Because he has this weird attitude, like he he like I tweeted a million times, he won't let it drop, he, because he won't admit that that's an issue. Where everyone knows it's an issue, it's like it's so funny. But the the volleying though, I remember early on with Djokovic when he would go to the forecourt, I would think, oh god. <laughs> and it was with him. It wasn't even about hitting the volley with him. It was all at first. It was coming at the wrong time, not coming when he should have come in. It was at that basic level. And we're talking about who's probably going to end up as the GOAT. And this is a person who had to work this hard. And the Rado kind of comes along at 18 and can do everything. Because the few times she was at net, she hit these like perfect volleys with these perfect yeah. technique. So you look, what the heck? Where'd she come from? Yeah. I think it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of the fact that somehow she didn't feel the pressure she she probably was thinking to herself like hey this is the time of my life like why should i even feel any pressure it's not like i'm supposed to win anyways and i saw like a few, a few of the volleys that she played even look since we were talking about that technique in particular she played a few against sakri just just flawlessly like it's mm-hmm. the, the movement is fluid this is fluid the target is perfect mm-hmm. um it's not like she's overheating anything it's not like she's trying to go for the lines it's no. just right 
where the measure should be for that shot. And if there's any shot that I, th- I feel like could be worked on for January and it would be perfect, it would be probably the forehand. I think it's her weakest wing. But even then, like, it's not like it's a bad forehand. Like, it's fantastic. It's so... No, and she it, has it, a really she's, she's nice definitely has that swing. I mean, yeah. it's not like she has a hitch or anything. Yeah. she got, It feels like she can hit it a million times and she hits it whenever she wants. Mm-hmm. And, and that final was just so interesting because I remember thinking that Raducanu actually came out with a very interesting game plan of kind of kind of like Medvedev the, the, the following day. Just kind of like, here, show me what you got. I'm just going to hang back. I'm going to hit mostly at you. I'm going to see what you can do. And Layla was like, sure, I will more than gladly take the baton on this. But then I was wondering, why is she doing this? And the match was was even, it was even. And then Rado kind of started to accelerate and kind of show us more things. That's why when the first set ended, I thought, this is over. There's no way. Because she's not playing conservatively because she's choking. She's playing conservatively because she's being smart. And she's just using... She's going little by little, show, doing as much, only as much as she needs to. And then when she needs to, that's why the second set was actually really interesting because they were playing all out then. Raducanu was attacking on the lines and Layla was pushing her wide. And But the fact that it took that long and she already had a set and I think a break already, it was over. I mean, I, I thought it was, you felt it. That's why I yeah. think at that point I felt what all those other women felt in on the court, I felt as a fan of Fernandez just watching that, thinking, "Oh, yeah, this is this is done. Yeah, she has it. Unless she like violently chokes, right? It, which she did not. And she's. I was going to say she's one of the most poised players I've ever seen. I didn't see her quarter with Benjic, but I saw all of her semi and all of her final, and she just didn't get nervous. Came out, played well, didn't get tight no. at all. Like against Sakari in that second set, she was up a break. And twice, Sakari saved multiple break points to hold. And usually when that happens, the game after is a tough one for you to hold mm-hmm. to maintain the lead because the, the momentum's going back against you a bit. And I think both times she holds a 15 or something. It was brutal. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. well, and she, and, I don't understand how she can serve. She doesn't have like an enormous serve or anything. She hits the corners. Yeah, it's like Djokovic type of uh, game, really, honestly, like in, in a few ways, which is like, very efficient. I feel like Raducanu tends to be a bit more aggressive, um, but the, the serving is is spot serving at its best, and it takes yeah, a while and to get Djokovic there. It took Djokovic a decade to get to that point. Yeah, because exactly. at first he had a good serve, but if you see matches like early on, 2006, 2007, he had this like very actually was aesthetically prettier version because he kind of stretched out and kind of arched his back. But uh, he started having issues with his back in 2009. And that's when he changed his stance on return and then abbreviated the serve. But before that, he, he had a decent serve. It was really good, actually. It was a strength. Um, but he, he had more pop, but he wasn't as good with the corners. Mm-hmm. It was, I think, 2015 when he, when he had that like wonderful season that he really ma- mastered the, the Federer thing of I'm going to hit the corners and I'm going to hit them from the same spot, from the same toss, and you're not going to be able to read them. And Raducanu was amazing because she, like, what was it? The the server, I think on, she can hit the slider out wide from the deuce side and she can hit the tee. 
I mean, that, that that's it. That's like 50% of the foundation. You're going to hold all the time if you can do those two things. And she could. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's really, I don't know. I mean, I've been watching tennis for not, not as long as some other people. Mm-hmm. I've not seen anything like this. Not even Federer was that good when he showed up. I don't remember Serena. Like, that's what I, I kind of wish I could remember. If Serena was that fully put together to begin but it was just wild and now you know now now comes the the let's see how hard she makes it but it's hard to show up at tournaments knowing that everyone kind of expects you to win and in her case what's going to happen when she loses a set panic right absolute panic <laughs> when someone takes her to a tiebreaker like I mean, when's the last time she played one of those <laughs> it's like what are I they like? yeah she hasn't even played a tour match yeah. Oh my. That that's the one. Not a single thing. one. I, what, one of the craziest stats I saw is if she wins the U.S. Open again next year, she's going to lose points because of the qualifying points she got from this year <laughs> because of those first three matches. Because it, it's like 2040 instead of 2000, which is just insane. Yeah. And it's. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. And like physically as well, like these matches were all straight sets, but ten matches with like a day a day rest is at 18 and like i didn't notice any physical dips from her at all so no and actually going back to what you said about sorribe stormo because i actually was curious about her because uh i had heard pop up in some podcasts i think i'd seen your tweets about it and i hadn't seen her because uh, right now i i really only see women's tennis at the slams because i don't have the tennis channel so i had heard heard the legend of sorribe stormo <laughs> and i was curious about watching her and she was the one aside from Leila, that she didn't she didn't crumble she just tried and nothing worked i mean she i remember the last game of the match she was still fist pumping she, just it was hilarious um trying to zero zero six zero five at deuce she wins a 25 shot rally and fist pumps like four times <laughs> yes and she's pumped and she wins one game and it's on this uh it wasn't like on a tiny tiny court but it was out you know out in and it, it seemed like not a whole lot of people were watching, and Raducanu just didn't give a crap. And then the Benjic match was actually interesting because that one I think came after. No, Shelby Rogers yeah. came after. Oh right, yeah, Benjic was quarters. So I thought, you know, Shelby Rogers is, is Shelby Rogers. You know, good story. She seems really nice, but she's, you know, but at this point she's a known quantity. So when she kind of collapsed against Raducanu. I, it didn't surprise me that much, even though she started so well. And then Benches shows up, and I'm thinking, well, this might be a different level. And Benches came out firing, just destroyed her uh, to start. And then Raducano was kind of like, oh, okay, I see what you got. And it was over. It's over. Completely over. Yeah, I definitely want to see like what players come up with tactically to see like how to break her like well mentally and actually her serve um even though Layla did break a couple times in the match I think which was Mm -hmm. very interesting because Layla really pushed her against the wall there um yeah and but I really want to see like now that we've got the full world watching Raducanu people are definitely watching her it's not like they're expecting her to be like oh it's just like a top 30 player no that's not just a top 30 player he's a top 30 player who jumped (laughs) <laughs> over 120 positions in the rankings 
because of a winning of the U.S. Open, right? So it's it's exciting for me to see matches with Raducanu next, right? So like I want to see players pushing her hard and her pushing players hard as hard as they can, and see like a like a nice everyone. epic match. Yeah, yeah. I guess it, yeah. let's see which what works. Yeah, throw, exactly. Throw the gauntlet at her. Throw Barty the kitchen uh, which, sink, <laughs> which she yeah. could have actually played, and then Barty just. Collapsing oh, and Shelby Rogers. Yeah. yeah. That Wasn't it 5 2 in the third set? That was that double. Was awful. Break. Yes, yeah. I, uh, because I went to cook. <laughs> I thought, well, that's over. I went to cook, come back and they're in the tiebreaker. Like, what the heck happened here? Yeah. I mean, and, you I, know, I'm not going to criticize Barty too much. She's been away for so long. I don't know how the heck she's doing it, especially she's not even someone who enjoys the travel all that much. She would rather be in Australia and she's been gone all that long. So I, I'm not surprised like it wasn't that crazy but she especially because she had been having issues closing on matches right like it wasn't like it popped out the first time so but yeah i want to see her against party i want to see her against osaka i want to see her just against andreescu that one is the one that i I find could be interesting because that's one of the matches that i I, at the end of the tournament i was so burned out that i didn't want to listen to any best of matches or whatever but I thought that Andreescu Sakari match was unbelievable. It was a marathon. It was brutal. Yeah, and Andreescu pretty much only lost because she sort of like started like feeling her body. Like not only lost because of, but like it was a big factor in Sakari winning well, Sakari, that match. Yeah. Sakari broke her. I mean, she yeah, physically, <laughs> physically she broke her. Yeah. I mean, she she made made her realize, okay, you need to be at my physical level. And that's the only way to survive this one. Broker, completely broker. It was, yeah, that match was wild, especially because it was a long, came after long matches before. Yeah, it, it finished some crazy late time. It finished, the, it I, was I the latest. I any of yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I watched all of it because, well, I work for Tennis Canada, Tennis Canada. so I was basically covering it. Um, and it was like the latest um, women's finish at the US Open ever. And oh, yeah, yeah. I lost sleep because of that match. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, that match ended, and it wasn't that late here, but it was what a match. But I want to see her. Well, I want to see Andrescu fully, you know, give us a, a full season, get in, get in that kind of Sakari shape because you know it's her. I really like her game. I I miss her watching her play. Her U.S. Open run when she won the title was so crazy, and I loved it. Um, but she just, it, for whatever reason, she's just been everything gets hurt. She doesn't last more than a tournament and a half. So hopefully, hopefully, we get to see uh, Raducanu against everyone, even against uh, like it's a lesser player, but even against like Halep, even against uh, I was going to say Mo- that big Muguruza, Azarenka, Kerber, just. Throw everyone, everyone at her and see what happens. New WTA championships format, maybe. It's yes. R- everyone <laughs> against the world. Yeah. Well, he, well the, the sad thing is, can she even, I don't think she can get to. Oh, yeah. She's not going to qualify. Yeah. She's still at 30 or so, right? Yeah. To the, she's 23, actually, in the world. Um, yeah, Layla actually jumped to 28. <laughs> but, yeah. It tells you how far away they were. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, the, the WT rankings also, I mean, it took, with the pandemic and the way they froze the points, it took Sviantic forever to get to the top 10. It, it took the, uh, what's her name? Uh, 
Tlachiko are forever again to the top 10 too. Whereas usually you do okay, you win a major, you're right there at the top 10. But yeah, in this case, it was, they were so far away. But yeah, that was that was the women's tournament. That which was a nice kind of distraction uh, for me personally, just trying to see if Djokovic would do his thing. The women's event kind of provided this completely different thing that made me kind of forget uh, the whole Djokovic thing. I think it made everybody forget the Djokovic thing, uh, which might have helped him too, but not enough. I mean, that, th- that road to the final, I was, I was talking about that with, um, with my parents a while ago. And um, I mean, he had Nishikori, Brooksby, Berrettini, Zverev, Medvedev in a row, all pretty brutal matches. And well, they the all showed up, just kept getting the, worse. Yeah, exactly. Which was even the little kid Rune, the first round, the only guy who showed up, who didn't show up was that, uh, the, the Dutch guy, the Greek uh, Greek score. Yeah. That, that was the one time I wrote about Djokovic all tournament. Was that match is the worst one to watch. Yeah. Because he, I mean, you know, Greek score was one of those guys who's too, had never been in that place. a little older. So he kind of knows he's convinced of what he is. Yeah. Whereas Runa didn't care. He was, uh, he thinks he belongs there. So right. he put on a show. But then Nishikori was a surprise because the Olympic match, I mean, Djokovic just destroyed him. I mean, made him look utterly inadequate. And I actually, coming into that match, I thought it was going to be tough. I thought that was going to be the toughest Olympic test. And uh, lo and behold, Nishikori shows up at the US Open and plays some of his best tennis to no avail. And then Brooksby, I... I said I was convinced that that was going to be tough because I saw Brooksby play also for the first time because that's another one that I had heard the legends and seen the score the score lines and heard all the positive comments, but I hadn't seen him. And then I saw him against Fritz and against Karatsev. I thought this kid, this I mean, this kid likes this kid likes a dogfight. He's not going to show up on Ash and be afraid. I mean, this kid's going to fight. Uh, with this weird ass game that I love, <laughs> so I think for once Djokovic did not really scout very well because <laughs> I think he was kind of prepared for the shots, but he wasn't prepared for the intensity at all. And I mean, the first set lasted like very—it felt like five minutes, just over in a flash. And then the second set was just brutal. But after that, I thought, okay, Djokovic is ready for what comes next. I did not expect Berrettini to play that well in the first set. I thought he would. I When I first saw the draw, I thought, well, getting Berrettini, everyone was saying, oh, Djokovic has this amazing draw. I thought, oh, Berrettini in the quarterfinals, not exactly easy. Like, everyone said, oh, but he's hurt and he's not playing well. I mean, he was not hurt. Or if he, he was, not hurt. he did a very good job of covering it up. If anything, his injury might have shown in the fact that he just ran out of gas. So, because yeah. he didn't have a chance to play that much before the the U.S. Open, but I mean, he that first set was like an hour and twenty minutes, just brutal, <laughs> completely brutal tennis. So there was that, and then that semifinal, I think that's the one I was dreading, just because of the guy, what he represents, yeah. but then also just the tennis, because I saw the one in the Olympics, and it was one of the weirdest matches I've ever seen where the match is going one way 
and all of a sudden it flips completely and you never saw it coming it makes perfect sense by because of what you're watching but the flip didn't make any sense and it happened like that it was it was really something also watching that at three in the morning was not great trying to understand that. I remember waking up the next day and thinking, did I really watch that? Did that actually happen the way I remember it happening? But yeah, I mean, I know that I knew that everyone kept saying again, no, it's very best of five or whatever else, you know. But then I, I had a feeling that he was going to show up. It was not going to be like Australia where I'm that one he blew because Djokovic he, was hurt. He blew that, yeah. And he did not show up to that one. To this Third one. and fourth sets he should have won. Yeah. And the funny thing is that was a match that kind of foreshadowed what was going to happen in the final where these guys, Zverev and, and, and uh, Medvedev, they, they understood that to beat the very elite, you just kind of have to roll up your sleeves and accept that it's going to be a battle not don't show up to it thinking that you have to out out hit them or play red line no you have to stay with them and Zverev just kind of did and also ceded a bunch of the initiative to Djokovic and for a lot of the rallies nothing was happening because Zverev was not going to do anything and Djokovic wasn't feeling too comfortable to do anything so you had this weird situation where I feel like the first two sets, it seemed like a practice session. And then they started hitting the ball every once in a while. And it was still kind of like, it was made clear. Zverev is not going to be, he's not going to fold. He's not going to go away. And it took Djokovic's, what I guess we now can see in retrospect, his last <laughs> tank of gas to put him away in the fifth set where he was, the best he played that whole match, the fifth set. And after I watched that, I thought, mistakenly, oh, he's ready for the final. And he was not. Because <laughs> the final was pretty clear that Medvedev had. I mean, he... He, he had a tank and a half at that point. Yeah. It yeah. He wasn't a, yeah. against anyone. A tank and a half and, and mentally... Because I, I thought he was going to win the Australian Open. I, I, I did too. I, I'm I still convinced. kicking myself for that. I thought he would win in four. And yeah, and I wrote your thing, and you were very into and very correct about Medvedev. And he was, I really thought he was ready in Australia. I was fully, since Djokovic was hurt, Medvedev was fresh. I thought, well, this guy made the final. Now he's kind of announced himself. I think that there's a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a mental thing that happened both for Medvedev and Djokovic. Uh, for Medvedev, at first, I really believe that he likes the weirdness he likes to be the the antagonist he likes to be the anti-hero in a sense like he's not like he's evil but he's like neutral <laughs> but yeah, he's like, like a, you're, yeah he really liked the fact that he was trying to be the one he probably really thrived in the sense i was like finally i got to get djokovic and not allow him to win in the final the most historic thing that could ever happen probably in, in tennis most likely ever but uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like he really liked it. And I think Djokovic probably just crumbled under every single circumstance in terms of pressure um, well, to win that match. Yeah. No, yeah. not mentally, not physically, not anything. No, no. and I, 
Actually, I like this point a lot because it it explains Australia. Because I think in Australia, I would think most people thought he was the favorite. And I don't think Medvedev was ready for that. Because mm-hmm. he thought, oh, shit, everybody expects me to win. And now I have to win. And then Djokovic shows up and is the, definitely did not play like he was hurt. <laughs> so it wasn't like he had anything to anchor. And all of a sudden, he was down seven, two sets in a break. Yeah. Um, but for this one, he came knowing that Djokovic was healthy. But he came knowing that, like you said, I do. I agree. I think Medvedev maybe is more comfortable at this stage in his career of being kind of like the underdog or someone who is being going to be underestimated. And he just showed up and played for a flawless match, uh, aside from when he first tried to serve it out when he double faulted like crazy. But yeah. I think in the broadcast, they were saying, they, they mentioned it briefly, but it's one of those things where in the broadcast, they don't go into it technically. But the serving performance in the first two sets was ridiculous because he was hitting, not only was he hitting lines, not only was he hitting like 120, 130, like it was nothing, but he was also mixing in off-speed serves every once in a while. He was hitting all these crazy targets, just doing everything possible to keep Djokovic guessing. And it was amazing. I mean, he was just solid as a rock and that game plan of being like, okay, I'm just going to sit back and I'll move up when I need to, but I'm just going to let you do it. Yeah. Show me what you got. <laughs> and and Djokovic didn't, didn't have didn't have it. Yeah. And I think all tournament he I mean he had four sets of amazing tennis. Because when he put away Berrettini, those three sets, that's when I that was the weird thing about this whole Djokovic thing. When the tournament started, I didn't think he was gonna win it. I didn't even think he was gonna make the final. I was very pessimistic. And then I saw the Brooksby match and I thought, oh, okay. Maybe. Then I saw the Berrettini match. I thought, oh, right. He's ready. And he's playing well enough. And then this very match uh, kind of threw doubts at me again. But then the fifth set, again, I said, okay, this is this is slime winning level. But so it just kind of went up and up and down, up and down. Is he going to win it? Do I think he's going to win it? And then at the end, it just became... Because even now, now that now that you know the match happened, and at the time I was furious about this, I honestly don't think that lead would have made any difference. I mean, that led in the second set where it's oh on the break point, yeah, the break point where he's finally playing a break point well. He's all over that break point, and then the the music comes through the speakers. That was and they have to. I mean, the, the craziest thing. And at the time, I thought, wow, this swung the match, and this was. But now I'm thinking back, he had nothing. Maybe he breaks. I mean, at best, like I would feel like you would have been four instead of three, but I do, I don't think yeah. because Djokovic showed at some points that he wanted to try, but Medvedev just kind of crazy defended. I think Owen like tweeted something about that, like that maybe in the last few games, Djokovic really threw everything at Medvedev. It just came back, and Medvedev just like won like yeah. three out of those, like two out of those three incredibly ridiculous points that they played. Yeah, the yeah. Which well, was tried, last, but like it just game. came to it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, last game, like the first three points, it was like, okay, this is what this match should feel like. Djokovic yeah. is actually doing the right things. And uh, Medvedev won two points like that to get yeah. to 30 love. But yeah, yeah I mean, those... been, at most four sets, I'm not even sure Djokovic yeah. even wins the second. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, yeah. but but I totally agree with you about it looking like Djokovic could win the tournament because those three sets against Berrettini, I mean... Berrettini fought like hell 
And his reward, he was in one service game of Djokovic just those last three sets. He had one break point, mm. two, four, third set, and then it went away. And like it's like, okay, you're done. And he had just battled to save like five break points at one four. It was it was insane. <laughs> he was serving, he was hitting these massive serves and just like all of them were coming back. It was yeah. that was ridiculous. No, it was it's, comical. It's almost unfair. <laughs> it was un- it was it was ridiculous. It was unbelievable. I don't I don't think many people saw it, but I think the announcers on the ESPN feed, they did see it because they kept yeah. talking about how those last three sets against Berrettini. It's like, yeah, that was scary. But I mean, I think the other aspect that I kept thinking about, you know, now with distance from the event and how it unfolded is, I don't know, maybe going to, to the Olympics was not a good idea. It probably would have been better served. I mean, it's one of those where if he doesn't go, First, he gets huge backlash in his country, which he got anyway. <laughs> he withdrew from that double, the mixed doubles. Like. And he would have gotten that. So he would have been mentally affected by that. But then he would have been fresher. He would have been able to play Cincinnati at least. Um, I don't know. It's one of those... Does he win the, the calendar slam if it's not an Olympic year and he doesn't have to deal with going, not going? We'll never know. But the fact of the matter is at the time I thought, well, this is going to be great because if it happens, it's great. And if it doesn't, there's still time. But the way that went, I don't think helped the cause at all. And Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today you know, reflected in the fact that he didn't even play Toronto or Cincy, which was a, a first in his career. He had never skipped both. So, I don't know. Maybe it would be nice to do a simulation, see what happens if he doesn't show up at the Olympics and avoids more heartbreak. Because the way he called... So, in, in this final, I don't think he necessarily collapsed. I just think he he didn't have enough. He wasn't good enough. And Medvedev was way too good. I mean, it was flawless. But in that semifinal against Zverev at the Olympics, I mean, that was a collapse. That was a complete collapse. Yeah. He could not, it's like it's he forgot how to play tennis. <laughs> and he wasn't tired because he dismantled Nishikori the previous night in an hour. So it was, I mean, that was just one of those where, you know, you sense that mentally 
I mean, in tennis, you see guys and you see, are they healthy? Sure. But mentally, no one still knows how to measure how much gas they have in the tank. And as I remember with him, especially, I've, I've mentioned this often on Twitter, that that 2007 um, Masters Cup at the time, the World Tour Finals, where it was his first breakout year. And he just, he wasn't, he wasn't hurt. He was perfectly fine physically. But he just could not focus in a match to be able to win a set. He didn't win a set. He went over six. He even lost to Gasquet, which is, I think, the the nadir of your capability. When you lose to Richie Gasquet anywhere, you lost in straights. So, or Gasquet he used to play good, though, like in the past. <laughs> and that's when he was. But I mean, even when he was good, Djokovic would beat. I mean, that's True. the only time he beat him. Um. But yeah, I would. I used to joke that anybody would have beaten Djokovic in that. And there's always that person at the Masters at the World Tour Finals yeah. who shows up and goes over six because oh, no. they're yeah. they're just mentally fried and they have nothing else to do. And it's like yeah, their 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 goal has been achieved. They're in there, but it's like they remember that they actually have to play tennis. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember reading on the changeover like a live blog of Federer and uh, Tifsarovich and uh, at the World Tour Finals and. Um, and I remember like half of it was just jokes about Tipsarovich because he wasn't interested. And it was like early break, <laughs> early break, like no break points. It was just over in an hour. Yes. Oh, and Federer has seen a few of those because he, he usually is, well, he's always spry for, for the World Tour Finals. And then sometimes you get those people. I mean, he double bageled Gaudio at one of those. Yeah. Literally double bageled him. So no, I think, yeah. I mean, and we also saw that just the toll that this calendar slam thing takes because when Djokovic, even when Federer was going for what would have been the Federer slam, it wasn't nearly as much as this. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the big story that it was because it feels like with the calendar slam, everyone pays attention. Everybody's there. Everybody's looking. And it's just a lot. I don't, I don't think, I mean, you know, you never know. Maybe Raducanu does it in two years. Maybe she does it next year. She wins all four and without dropping a set. Who knows? Maybe we see it like right now. But I just think with the way the world is, with social media, with 24-hour sports news and all that crap, and also the, the money, the pressures that we don't even see, like what it means, all this stuff. I just think it's really hard. I mean, yeah. I don't know how the heck Steffi did it. I mean, in, in 88 stuff wasn't exactly like it is today. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have, I don't know how well broadcast these events were. I mean, the stadiums were kind of like the ones we have. But that seems remarkable. In retrospect, Serena crumbling against Vinci makes a lot of sense. <laughs> makes I, was sense. A, I was amazed that Djokovic... Um took this long to sort of get burned out because at first it looks like it's going to happen in the Roland Garros final and that second set against Tsitsipas I was like he's done he's got nothing and then he it won looked like that. he was done like I thought he was done yeah like goes to Wimbledon I'm like okay it's going to happen there he's never won the channel slam goes there wins Wimbledon and then wins six rounds at the U.S. Open of like all kinds of matches brutally physical matches and unfortunately he got the wrong opponent in the final and ran out of gas, like literally one match too, yeah. too soon. It's, it's, it's tough. It was, it was kind of sad, like seeing 
Djokovic was, well, Djokovic is known for his baseline game, right? And as we spoke before, he's not very known for his volleys, but he kept charging the net and rushing and going and, and using like those crazy approach shots that he, he wasn't even in position to play those. He was just like right at his feet and trying to guide the ball back down the line. And Medvedev is definitely not the player that you're trying to do those, right? Like, because Medvedev is like, it's like, I don't know if you guys know this, but like the, the, there's a Superman and there's this character that looks like Superman. It's kind of like what I feel like Medvedev is and Djokovic. Ours like Medvedev is like this weird version of Djokovic, but does everything pretty much exactly the same and just as well. So this is essentially like how I felt like Medvedev. Yeah, exactly. And he serves bigger. Yeah. So yeah, it's like why are you doing? Why are you trying to do this? This is not gonna work. So like I feel like it's probably Djokovic knows like yeah I know it's not gonna work, but like what what else do I got? Got to try something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the the thing with Djokovic at the net, it's like um I remember there was one volley he hit in the Wimbledon final. He was serving for the third set, and I think this made it four day fifteen, and it was like a stretch forehand volley, and it was amazing. And the Twitter timeline erupts and everyone goes, my God, Djokovic is like a god at the net now. I'm like, no, he isn't. Like he's become pretty good, but it's not his game. And so it's like he hits all these pretty good volleys and then break point in the middle of the second set. There's this volley at his feet and and it's makeable and it just goes flying. Like it, I, I don't know if either of you remember this. I think like two all second set and it's, it just flies off his racket, goes like 10 feet long and setting a break is like kind of the match at that point in retrospect. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like, as well as he can do it sometimes, that's not, that's not how he wins matches. It's never been yeah. how he wins matches. Yeah. No. I mean, seriously, no. even amateurs hit perfect shots every once in a while, right? So like, it's not, you know, 100% surprising that Djokovic would hit a good volley, like in a couple of matches since he does that for a living. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, it's not quite as extreme as the Gasquet 100 mile an hour backhand oh, yeah, down no. the line when everyone's like, this is one of the best backhands in the world. And it's like, no, it's not. This is, something he does once a match but like Djokovic does it more often than that but it's still not like his backhand yeah. well and he was like he was serving and volleying yeah. more repeatedly which for him is always a sign of panic yeah. I got nothing because I, I mean in his ideal state that would have been a brutal baseline grind fest and Djokovic knew that he didn't have it and that if he even devoted devoted one set to that it wasn't going to work. I mean, it was, it was doomed. It was his own. I think the only way he makes it, he wins the calendar slime is if he plays somebody like if Felix has shown up on the other side of Felix and his amazing record in the end final. Oh God. So, I... so mad at Felix. Like, come on, man. He, <laughs> because, he is oh, going to win a grand slam and it's going to be his first title. Just watch it. <laughs> It, it might, but he, I mean, talk about somebody who made me believe and then erased my belief in, in a set and a half. Cause I thought, I thought I finally saw like something new and the way he folded in that second set against Medvedev just, it was like he folded in all these others, the, all the finals. It was exactly the same. He just, the belief is gone and he can barely win any games. And I think I tweeted that I didn't mind that he blew that game, that he got broken. It was tough. I mean, he had stoned a volley on game point, made some errors. That's fine. It's still 5-5. Five, five. Just don't go away. And he just, I mean, the rest of it was. But if he had somehow beaten Medvedev. That would have been a ghastly final. That would have been a horrific final. Because, I mean, Felix in that scenario, 
I mean, it would have been the ultimate troll, right? First, first title, first hit one, <laughs> stopping the calendar slam, right. you know, could have happened. But Djokovic needed someone like that, someone who would have been terrified, overwhelmed, not prepared, a, a slam final rookie, not a guy who was in his third and ready for revenge. Well, and Power by stuff. the way, mind you, Medvedev in his first U.S. Open final did that thing against Nadal, where he almost oh came back God. from Tsitsipas to love that. So yeah, definitely yes. the worst type of opponent yeah. that you can oh, face. I mean, and that? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I don't know. I just I, that was it. That's my thought. <laughs> okay, um, I was going to, and that shows you what Djokovic was up against. Because in 2019, Medvedev was not fully formed, and he basically breaks Nadal physically. Like he didn't win, but by the middle of the fourth set of that final. Nadal is gassed and like somehow still ended up playing well. But, and, and now I think, I don't think Medvedev was as impressive in this match. Honestly, I think besides serving, he didn't have to do a whole lot under pressure, but like he's more formed now. Like he defends better. He returns better, probably serves better. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, like he's clearly the, the number two player in the world. And I mean, might be the number one player on hard courts now. He's, he seems ready to take that mantle from Djokovic I mean people kept saying that he has the most titles since over the past couple of years most titles on hard he plays more on hard but I mean he's a guy I mean, that's clearly his strength he's you make the final of both hardcore slams he went he has a bunch of the I guess he's won. he hasn't won the sunshine ones right no but he I think he's won all the other ones a couple he of them blew the times. Miami yeah he badly. and Sitsipas didn't they Oh yeah, he both lose to Carreño uh, Busta four and six, uh, four yeah. and two, which was awful. That was a yes. weird tournament. It's probably the weirdest tournament of twenty twenty one. Yeah, I didn't I, I vaguely I didn't I didn't watch it. Obviously, I just was following along and thinking, what the heck is happening there? That's the one I thought that Sitsipas blew. Yeah, he, yeah. he had a he lost he, the sooner, I think. Uh, I, I think he lost a Hercotch. I think he had like a double break on Hercotch in the third. Oh, yeah, was, I think it was Hercotch, yeah. The winner yeah, of the tournament. Is, yeah. yeah, I didn't think that was the one that Medvedev blew because Medvedev already had Masters events. That's the one I thought Tsitsipas and Rublev blew because they're the ones who lost to the eventual finalists when yeah. it all seemed like it was going to be a Tsitsipas-Rublev. And then they ended up playing... They played the Monte Carlo final, right? Yeah, yeah, they did. The, and Which, that, that was yeah. a bad final. Uh, Rublev got to deuce in one return game, zero break. It's like Tsitsipas completely destroyed Rublev, and this Rublev completely destroyed himself pretty much in that match. Although, um, on Tsitsipas on hard court, I think something I've started to think is that I think people overrate him on hard court. He really has not done that much. Like Australian Open, two semifinals, he's beaten Federer, he's beaten Nadal. That's amazing. But if you look at the Masters 1000s, he has one final, and that was three years ago. And then U.S. Open, yeah. he's done nothing. And so it's like, I think, I don't think he's a legitimate threat to win a major yeah. on hard court because he can't beat Medvedev and he can't beat Djokovic. So. I, I agree because I, I honestly think Tsitsipas is, he struggles on hard. He struggles to win his matches on hard court. Like he heavily depends on his serve, we, even though he's not a serve bot as we I don't want to use the term, but like since we're here, um, he's not like a rally Opelka who can actually blast serves like almost like 90 degrees onto the serve box. But like he, and he has to depend on this because his return game isn't strong enough on hard. He gets exposed really easily for several reasons, not necessarily just because of the, the you know, like he can, um, I, I forget the term, but he can just like slice it back, like a block serve. But sometimes he just doesn't know how to read it properly. 
and he the speed just gets to him and he just doesn't make use of his weapons as well and obviously the slice is a little bit of an issue and on clay he's obviously fantastic he reached the final almost won almost should have won them that the final but uh on hard he's, he's still struggling to find a game that works for him on that surface uh, in my opinion oh yeah i mean he's a bad returner when you're a bad returner on a fast surface it's it's hard it's gonna be hard it'll always be hard because uh yeah i don't he's a, a weird dude i mean sometimes he plays so well and you know this is what some people just confuse i mean because you do well at one of the hardcore slams does not automatically mean you do well at the other because they're both kind of unique in a way. So, like, Brodick never made the Australian Open final. Never. Not once. Made the semis, I think, once. And there are other cases, too, where they're just, you know, different events, even though it's the same surface. I think now it's even the, well, not anymore, but for a while it was even the same manufacturer. You know, the conditions are different. The stadium is different. It's a different event. So maybe he just does well in Australia and nowhere else. And that's talking about another slightly bad break for Djokovic was getting Medvedev in his half, not Medvedev, uh, Zverev in his half and not Tsitsipas. Because more likely than not, Tsitsipas would not have been there. Would have been, like we saw, he was not there. Because he has never really done well at the US Open. But instead he got Zverev, which... I mean, his draw ended up playing to seed. He ended up playing, what, six, four, and two? Yeah. Back to back to back. Let's. And his youth, sure. If this was, if this was like not part of the calendar slam, maybe. But not in this circumstance. That, 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 was, that was pretty much it. Um, what did you guys think of uh, our our Spanish friend uh, Alcaraz? Alcaraz, I, I was gonna bring him up next. I thought, um, I mean, I was I've seen your tweets about uh, his return of serve, um, because I think you uh you took a screenshot of the return rankings and you were so excited, and then um, and then the match point, um, I remember you tweeted like that's how you play a match point, kid, and like all caps, and I was, um, <laughs> no, I I thought he was great. Um, I, I love like how crisp his shots are. Um, yeah. like he can do. And he's running around his backhand a weird amount, but he gets so much pop off both of those. He um he kind of has that Nadal thing that you wrote about a while ago, where um like he comes to the net off the perfect ball. Like he'll hit um he'll hit a shot so good that it almost turns into an approach because of the weak shot that comes after it, uh, and then just comes in and puts that away. Um, and the tiebreak, I thought he might have blown it when it went from six three to six five, but uh, as you said, like perfect match point. So, what do yeah, you think? That was, um, that was a that was a that was very what struck me i keep thinking i don't know i have this image in my head i don't know if you guys saw this photo of felix and alcaraz at net after their match and uh, felix is just so much bigger oh and felix he, is, is a giant <laughs> comparison. he doesn't look like a giant like if you see him on his own you're thinking yeah this guy's like six six one six two he's huge i think it's six four yeah, C six four now, and like that's that's the thing that you know a while ago, even in the early early two thousands, there was a thing about how the the future you're going to see like the huge tennis players, and people thought that for example Del Potro or Chilich were were going to be it, like these giants that could move, and I think Chilich 
moved with a fluidity that was not as uh, how do you what's the word not as clumsy as other big guys before him but still not all the way there but these guys i mean medvedev zverev and felix they they move like they're six six feet it's an unbelievable so and then you have and then you see that they're huge so they get the advantage on the serve so they feel like the evolutionary trend is actually finally happening where even in the final one the other image i saw is like with Djokovic and serve Zverev is just so much bigger so much bigger and Medvedev so much bigger Medvedev, I'm pretty sure, I think he's six foot six, which is towering. It's is very, very tall. And, and he slides on hard court like it's ice. It is scary. Medvedev moves um, unnaturally well for his height, pretty much. No, he just, he kind of glides. It's, it's like he weighs nothing. Because um, it's funny, because these guys, I mean, I don't know, just looks like an, I don't know if you guys know, like Ian Flux, the, the cartoon, not the not the movie. Ian Flux was this MTV cartoon. Very weird. I mean to watch again, but the characters were all like very, very tall, very thin, very stylized characters. And these guys are kind of like that. And I have, I have this weird feel. I had this thought like, and it's maybe just like, um, you know, like 2 a.m. thought of, or, or not, but like I, Medvedev, he's ripped, right? But he's not big, especially like on his upper body. And I feel like it's part of his strategy to move well, because if he kind of like keeps the upper body a little lighter, maybe he can move around a little bit better and not compromise his knees that much. So maybe there's a way that um, physically he can pre- he can get his body to work in that way. And same with Zverev, I guess. Zverev is very slender. He got a little bit bigger like in the last few years, but that's a little bit just normal. But he's still like not anywhere near like Nadal in his prime, which was like just no. muscle mass, just like running around the court like a beast. And, you know, well, I think actually that's I don't know that anybody has really looked into it, but it's been a theory of mine for a long time that that's going to be one of the biggest legacies of Djokovic, honestly, because when he came up. Basically, back then, what would happen is, you know, a young guy comes in, when he's young, he's super thin, has no muscle, so then he has to beef up, and even Federer was kind of bigger, but then when Djokovic did his thing in 2011, was stopping the gluten, and he immediately got leaner, I don't think anybody paid attention, but Nadal and Federer also got leaner. Because they realized that the only way to survive on hard and play the kind of points that they wanted to play or they had to play, the only way was to get leaner. There is no other way. And that's actually why I think Sangha never really never really fulfilled his potential because that's a guy who never got lean. He always looked like Muhammad Ali <laughs> forever. <laughs> looked like a boxer from the beginning until the end. He just could not. And you know, not all body types can do it. But if you see a photo of Nadal from now to Nadal when like 2006, it's a different, it's a different body. Even like the muscle definition is completely different. 
and that's you know advances also in in um in sports science all these trading techniques that everybody is aware of now um and people invest a whole bunch of money in but it's no accident that they've those three guys have managed to last this long unlike the greats of the past at that level and i think the key part has been just getting leaner and like you said these new guys they're exactly like that like i don't think anybody's gonna go tell medvedev hey you gotta bulk up there medvedev no he's (laughs) Yeah, Perfect as it is. He almost looks like a marathon runner in a sense, like so lean, so skinny. Yeah, yes. like, well, when he lifts up, he's sure you can actually see that he's work. He he works out obviously. Like you, you gotta survive also by being strong. But like his shirt on looks like a fifteen-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there. If you see, if you see Nadal or Federer or Djokovic without a shirt, it's not like they're like massive. They're not Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo can do that because he runs on grass so on grass it's okay it's a cushioned surface uh plus he needs the bulk to be able to to contact sports a different situation or basketball players same thing they have to get big so they don't bounce off of defenders but in tennis they've realized that if they want to survive they have to be very lean and just be have that kind of muscle that's wiry and that's um, yeah I think now that you mentioned it, like you probably will re- remember this, but like Marty Fish used to be much bigger and then he sort of mm-hmm. made a comeback. And I think in 2011, he reached the final in Montreal and he was a different player. He was very different. He was much leaner. He mentioned that. He mentioned that I needed, I, I needed to lose like some 23 pounds and then I got my game back and I was much faster. I was feeling the core much better. I could last longer in matches. And I think it's because it's Marty Fish, it's not Djokovic. Um, they didn't make like the big news or anything, right? Maybe now that he's got a documentary, like he might mention something. I should watch it, right? Actually, now that I mentioned it. But um, I think it's it's definitely something that stuck with me like that. Instead of like being mus- more muscular and stronger, he m- made the difference by actually losing weight and making sure that he would, you know, focus on the areas of his body that would actually work for a tennis game. Exactly. Because the last ripped guy who had success was probably Verdasco, who in that, uh, you know, the match that Owen and I like so much, the, the semi against the old Australia, that's when he had been working with Gil Reyes, who had worked with Agassi. Right. And Agassi, when Gil Reyes worked with him, Agassi's body did everything. I mean, yeah. there are times where he showed up with like 10 more pounds of muscle, where he showed leaner, and they would just experiment back and forth. And Verdasco, he got him ripped. I mean, you see him in that 2009 semi. Verdasco is ripped. There's He's, a bit where he takes his shirt off and the crowd starts whistling on the changeover. I mean, he looks like an Adonis. And that, I think, is the last time that someone that ripped did that well. And, you know, Sanga, too, was like, he wasn't near, he was just built like a boxer. And he just, but he wasn't as chiseled as Verdasco was at that point. That's the last time. That's the last time. No one else really has. Being big is not really an advantage. And actually, if you going back to the women, the Raducanu and Fernandez, they're they kind of embody that. Like those two, they don't have. You could say that they have like not a, a an ounce of fat in their body, 
and they're so thin, but so wiry strong, and they kill the ball. Yeah. I mean, the, that's it. That's that's contemporary tennis. Lean, yeah. very strong, and very athletic. And that's contemporary I, tennis. I think height is really big as well, because you, you have to be tall enough to have a good serve. But I think the height that instantly gives you a great serve is not worth it because it costs you the return in the defense. Like if you if you look at Isner, it's like, yeah, serve is most important shot in the game. But the height that gives him that serve is killing the parts of his game that he needs to make himself more competitive. So it's like you, you don't want to be 6'10". You want to be 6'5", maybe. But like on the guys, like 6'1", 6'2", is where, where, where the best guys have been. Yeah. I think Carlos Alcaraz is 6'1". And... Uh... Let's be honest. Yeah, six foot one is a is a pretty tall guy. Like a, for like regular person, um, yeah, talking and like he. But the thing is, like Alcaraz kind of reminds me of, um, especially now, like amongst giants, uh, he sort of like reminds me of Ferrer. Like there's the tiny guy who moves super well and hits the ball super hard and you know is aggressive. Although Alcaraz, like he reminds me almost like in the sense of like placing him around the other players but like obviously Alcaraz I see a lot more potential in him his his shots are much heavier um serve can get better but he he also moves a little bit better like not that Fur didn't didn't move well he wasn't the best movers of his time but Alcaraz is just a little bit more of a fluidity in his game that for just kind of like was more like hard work like the guy you know that he does everything every single thing like by the book he's he works perfectly to hit everything perfectly, technically. And whereas Alcaraz is more like a natural talent in a way. I don't really like to use that word because I feel like natural talent kind of like turns all the people into journeymen. And I really hate that. But like, um, um, you know, it, it's just it's just like Federer, right? His Federer is fluid. And it's, it's just the way that he ended up playing the game. It feels that way. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was looking at Federer. Yeah, Federer was 5'9". And... I always had a soft spot for Ferrer, even though, <laughs> yeah, I still, I'm still annoyed that when I interviewed him, he just gave me nothing. Even though I interviewed him in Spanish, he was just one, one sentence answers. But he was just an amazing, one of the best returners ever at 5'9", which is crazy. But I always thought his issue was, his shots just didn't have a whole lot of pop. He we wouldn't he wouldn't miss, and he was good with placement. I mean that's why he had the career he had. But if he had the a recurring thing I put on Twitter is that if he had freaking Fonini's ball striking ability, oh my God. he would have won a couple slams easily. But his shots just had nothing, and I remember, and that's why he couldn't beat Federer. He would have yeah. definitely he would have definitely won that final in Miami against Murray if he had this funny shot. One inch <laughs> <laughs> like an inch away from that final. But no, he could never beat Federer because you know, you give Federer these three quarter pace shots, he's gonna murder His forehand you. Forehand is gonna kill you, yeah. Yeah, he's gonna murder you. So he always was so easy for him to beat Ferrer. Playing badly, playing well, playing hurt didn't matter. I mean, it did not matter. Ah, Ferrer. I miss him. Alcaraz is, I don't know. I mean, I hope he grows an inch or two more because he seemed for one, and, and Brooksby kind of, well, how tall is Brooksby actually? Because I think of him as being small, but I'm probably not. I, I think he's around six feet. Doesn't serve huge. He's listed at 6'4, which is oh, wow. crazy. 
it's a Felix site, so he could serve as big as Felix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his service is. Uh, yeah, he serves like a five foot nine guy, so it's yeah, not good. <laughs> even worse, because that's, that's those two guys really. And Alcaraz too survive. has a lot of work to do on his serve, by the way. Oh yeah, they both do. Well, the funniest one was actually Del Porto when he was coming up. He was hilarious. It's like nobody had taught him how to serve. His serve was pathetic. And then with a lot of hard work, it became like an actually good serve. Never like the kind of elite serve that someone his height had. But uh, not his first. Because I remember I watched the Porter when he played challengers. I was in Argentina too. So I would watch him. I, I heard of the guy. Some, I saw him win one in Uruguay. And... I just could not believe how bad his serve was. It was embarrassing. It's kind of like you know sometimes that happens, and when you grow up in in a, in a clay environment, that the service just not emphasized a whole lot. And I think that's that's the challenge. I think for Brooksby and for Alcaraz is uh, just they got to get more out of that because in, in the ATP it's just it's just hard. It's just hard to survive without a a decent yeah. a decent serve and i think both guys can do it i, I just hope that alcaraz has an inch more mm-hmm. two inches more would be perfect yeah i think it's sacrificing just, yeah. fluidity or anything just yeah. give me two inches because yeah. that photo again with felix he just looked small <laughs> it just looked tiny he did but i don't know maybe and, it doesn't matter how it, tall is sinner by the way probably six two i think he he's another weird guy. He's he's pretty similar to Alcaraz actually because his game Six, is technically three. perfect and he gets good pop on his shots, returns well, and his serve just doesn't really do anything. He, he he's a little different though actually. He can he can hit the one twenty, but he just doesn't like his he has no confidence in it. Yeah, and he he played that matching a serve. He was uh oh my god, he, that, he was very was disappointing show. in that match. Yeah, he was uh, and later people were praising him about um. How he said about how he's in this next phase of of his development. I thought, well, it kind of reminded me of like I don't think maybe that's the best way to rationalize a loss. Kind of reminded me of the kind of stuff that Marin Chilich used to say, like kind of way too self-aware to to detriment. Maybe um, we I got a weird vibe out of that. I'm, I'm kind of a I put that in a placeholder of let, let's see what happens with him in the future because that was weird. That it's was... almost like saying, as I am, I'm not good enough. And even if even if that's true, I don't think no, you should or tell even, yourself that. Yeah. I mean, there's even a difference if... when Serena Williams go out and say, like, I, I well, used to, and say, like, I know I can't play better, but she still wins the matches, right? So, like, it's just a seek of, like, seeking perfectionism, but, like, it's almost like trying to beat yourself like be better than you were yesterday, but not necessarily saying like be better than your opponent because you're not good enough. Like that, there's definitely like a different way to perceive uh, improvement. And and that's, uh, I guess, like what you mentioned in a way. Well, he was talking about how in the past he would come out and like blast these shots and go for stuff, but now he's more stellar, so he doesn't go for as much. And I kept thinking, dude, you blew the big points in this match. That's why you lost and you played those big points poorly. It's not like you didn't go for them. You made mistakes. So I don't know. Who knows? Maybe. He's certainly young enough. He's 20. And he's good. I mean, when when he's good, he's good. 
and he's already i mean he's already 13 felix is 11 i mean they're they're coming i'm sure it's, tony will keep yeah. working on felix it's one of these no. things that who was it that tweeted something well whatever i never never mind but like it's one of those things that those guys are different from Raducanu and and probably a lot of the women's uh, right now in the WTA tours are like a lot of these men are taking their time to learn. They're just kind of like going a very steady development, like a very like steady curve, but not not too flat, but not too steep either. Whereas like the women are just kind of blowing out of the park, like in the very first tournament, they're just kind of like, I'm just going to go for it. I know I have the game and I can win this. You know what I mean? It's just like, I saw, like, it's, it's almost like Radu kind of said, like, I saw Sviantec win. I saw Krejcikova win. I can do this too. And it's the same for Fernandez. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter that I didn't make up even the second week of a Grand Slam before this. I know I can, I can push the guy, the other girls like far and I can win those matches. It's, it's the lack of confidence in, in the microcosm of a tennis match, it was just like, you you develop your game, yes, like, and it's something that is like incremental, but you have to win the match that you're on right now. It's not like you can, you have time to improve to go back and win that match that you lost two years ago. That's not what happens, I guess. Well, and I think the difference is with the men, it's kind of like a Stockholm syndrome that the tour is in with the, the Federer and Nadal and Djokovic just hogging the big tournaments for so long that, you know, it's kind of like the someone who's captive and they don't believe that there's hope. There's no chance. So why bother? Because the situation is hopeless. Yeah. They probably have felt this way this whole time. But now that they're seeing that, you know, one veteran might not have knees anymore, that Nadal is struggling too. And that, I mean, Djokovic is still playing it like best player in the world, but that's just one. If it's just one... Because it used to be before, when they were really at it, that if you were anybody in the random t- in the round of in the top ten, you were faced with the potential draw of having to beat two of them to win a major, to win a Masters. If that's just rough, I mean, to beat two goats in a row, it's just too much. So I think that's why. The guys have kind of taken this this big picture, slow but steady approach that you mentioned, and just kind of waiting, waiting their turn. Because the fact of the matter is, and I think this is why people played like Djokovic again, like they played. This is why they played against Djokovic like they did, is they smelled blood, because they thought, yeah, this this guy's carrying too much pressure. This guy is there's too much riding on him. Uh, we got a shot, and they played like they had a shot. Yeah. At Wimbledon, I don't think anybody really did. I don't think anybody really thought that they they could play on grass to his level. But on hard, I think they all smelled it and they went for it. And yeah. that's the nature of tennis has always been. As soon as the top guys and and the top women start leaking blood, the the ones at the bottom just go for it. So that's going to start happening more. But I mean, I don't, I don't think I can blame necessarily somebody in 2015 for not going for it against Djokovic. Cause that's what are you going to do? Or all of those other years against those guys, just what are you going to do? It's an yeah. historical aberration. We're not going to see that ever again. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.